All right. So just as we transition, uh, good morning again. It is truly a joy to be with you. Um, Today, again, we're continuing our series on body, soul, spirit, an exploration of what it means to be human. And last week, Jack led us through Genesis 2, and he keyed in on the first question in the Bible, where are you? Right, the very first question. And then from there, we learned that God seeks us, he seeks after us, with the intent of bringing healing to our souls, wholeness to our souls. This, friends, is good news. This is great news. This morning, we're continuing in the same vein, in the same theme. We're going to look at Exodus 4, and as we explore how God helps us align our souls rightly, we'll set up the next couple weeks where we'll explore how do we embody our faith? What does, what's this mean, this whole series? What's it do to how we act it out? How do we live it? But before we um, dive into the text, join me for a word of prayer. Holy God, we are so grateful for this time this morning, this time to pause, this time to reflect, this time to hear from you and discern your words. I pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word and lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be near to us this morning, and we pray this in your name, amen and amen. So, to start, quick question for you. If I asked you to name one character from the Bible whose story you related to the most, who you related to, who you found your story in their story the most, who would that person be? Think about it for a minute. If you had to name one character, whose life in the Bible do you resonate with the most? Do you find your story in their story? For me, oftentimes, I connect deeply with Moses as a character. And it's not because he performs miracles, it's not because he's a leader, not even because he was a shepherd, and growing up, we had a herd of sheep that I oftentimes took care of. For me, something that has always resonated with Moses' story and my story is the experience of otherhood. The experience of otherhood. Here's what I mean. My parents were both immigrants from Hong Kong and China to Canada, north of Toronto. I grew up north of Toronto. And I was raised to become fluent in two languages. So bilingual, I am fluent in English. And the second language is French. French, yes. That may surprise you. My Cantonese is really bad, like really, really bad. It's almost, it's almost non-existent. I can understand. My parents still speak to me in Cantonese, but my responses are typically in English. And so in comparison to all my cousins, you know, my dad has seven brothers, which means we have a lot of cousins. My family, we lived a couple hours removed from the Chinese communities around Toronto, and so it, it was difficult for me to pick up the language just because the saturation isn't there. And in the Chinese community, I'm going to let you in into a little secret. I am what in the Chinese community people refer to as a banana. 
Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And this is the language that's like typical of the community. And you're all wondering, like, ooh, how do I feel about that? <laughs> that's the language, right? To represent the difference of worlds. And I found myself living between two worlds, and I found myself doing that growing up. You know, for instance, I remember my parents in elementary school, and I was crying to them saying, how come we can't have lunches like the other kids? You know, they have sandwiches, they have Lunchables, which are like, well, they're terrible, but they're also the precursor to charcuterie. So it's like, <laughs> you, get, you get there from a young age. <laughs> but we would bring um, beef tongue and rice, or like oxtail soup, which... Now that I think about it now, those things are delicious. I don't know why I was complaining. But at the time, lunch was always a reminder of difference. Like, I love food, and sometimes I would eat my lunch, no joke, in the bathroom because of this feeling of otherness, of not being able to fit in. On the other hand, hand, I am left-handed. And so when we'd eat with my grandparents... And they saw me using, cho- using chopsticks, um, and I was with my left hand, not my right hand. Popo, my grandmother, would always make a passive-aggressive comment about like, oh, left-handed, or you're not using the right hand, or have you tried using your right hand? These are all things, right, that were um, creating another sense of otherhood as well. There was always this nagging sense that I was not quite present in that world. You know, my lack of language skills and conformity to Chinese norms meant I wasn't really Chinese. In my appearance, my cultural upbringing meant I didn't always fit in to my 99% white, rural, Canadian public school. So I could go with more examples, but I grew up living between multiple worlds. And this is disorienting. This still, in some ways, is disorienting. If you reflect back on your own life, you can probably identify different worlds that you lived or have lived or that you currently live between now. Maybe it's the otherhood of feeling like you're a Christian in a secular society. You have this tension Maybe it's a socioeconomic difference. Maybe you were adopted or you grew up in a split household. So you had to learn to navigate different rules, expectations, hopes, depending on which parent you were spending the weekend with. Or maybe it's a sense of like imposter syndrome at your work. You don't know how to fit in there quite yet. Or even as a parent. There might be different voices in your ear from all directions who are um, telling you this is what a good parent does. Align to this. Do this. If you're a good parent, your child should do this. And you have all these different rules and expectations and worlds that are pulling into you saying this is how you should exist. Each of us, some more acutely than others, right? We don't want to make an equivocation, but everyone nonetheless, is going to have their own stories 
of being othered, of not fitting in. And when we drill down to what this sense of otherhood forms in us, we'll find that many of our insecurities around our professions, our personhood, our paradigms, our worldviews, the things that we hold, they're morphed expressions of our own trauma. And so this is certainly true when it comes to Moses. Many of our insecurities have deep roots in the trauma of being othered. But there is hope, friends, and it's right here in this text. When we see how God begins to rescue Moses' soul from the trauma of being othered, And for all of us this morning, there is an invitation for anyone who is broken to find wholeness in their souls with God. And so if you would, let's dive into the text. We're reading from Exodus 4, uh, verses 1 through 10. Exodus 4, 1 through 10. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to Moses, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And God said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from Nile will become blood on the dry ground. All right, so wow. This is a pretty surreal passage. Like the imagery, what happens in it, how do we make sense of this passage? What does this mean for us? Or better yet, we want, we always want to ask this question, how does this text read us, right? In our particular reading, this morning, it's important to recognize some of the context that happens before this chapter. So to start, think back to the beginning of Exodus when we hear about Moses. Moses is born under circumstances of deep oppression, where Pharaoh has told the midwives for the Hebrew people that if a male child is born, they are to fling or cast the son into the Nile. And then these two women, Shifra and Pua, disobey the rule of law. They privilege the lives of the Hebrews over the legal edict, over the policies. And then the text describes how shortly after, a particular baby boy is born. And his mother 
makes the heart-wrenching decision to part with her child because she knows that if some people had their way, her son will be murdered. So this baby boy is put in a basket and sent along the river strategically so that Pharaoh's daughter will find the boy. And when she finds the boy, she took pity on him, advocates for him, so that he gets to stay with his mother until Pharaoh's daughter adopts him as her own son, who she names Moses. And why Moses? Exodus 2.10 tells us the exact reason. Because she drew him out of the water. So it's an amazing story, right? Like every, every birth, every child is a miracle. But this is really amazing. But in all the action, I want to make sure we don't miss the significance of Moses' name. We've just seen that Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because he is the child of one who's been drawn out. He's the child of one who's been drawn out. Specifically in Egyptian, the word would be thutmos. Right? Moses is the child of one drawn out. But at the same time, Moses' name in Hebrew is translated deliverer, the one who draws out. And this is so crucial right from his naming, right from his birth, to recognize the two worlds that Moses is caught between. He's named the child of one drawn out, and at the same time, he's named the one who will draw out. We can't understand what Moses really is all about without understanding that he lives in the intersection between two worlds. This is the backdrop for Moses' upbringing. And so right after this in the text, the author fast-forwards past all the formative years until we read that Moses is all grown up. If you study the book of Exodus, you'll see these time warps all over the place where like in this case, Moses is born, he's named, he's all grown up. Well, what happens in that time? The author of Exodus puts the responsibility on us as readers to fill in what those years might have been like. And so, like, think about this moment in Moses' life. There's plenty, but think about this moment. What would it be like when Moses realized that the narratives he learned in his youth about Egypt, about the gods, about his family, what if he finds out when he realizes this might not be the full story? This might not be representative of everything that happens around him. What would it have been like for him to grow up looking up to his dad or looking up to his, uh, his mom? his grandpa with pride, looking up to them, and then realizing at some point in his life, when he starts piecing things together, that he is at the top of a pyramid, and there are plenty more people at the bottom. Think about that moment when he realizes that. And then the moment where he realizes that all the people around him that he's grown up with they don't necessarily look like him. And then he starts recognizing the people at the bottom of this pyramid look a lot more like me 
then I look like the people around me who are at the top of the pyramid. Think about that moment. The system that he's recognizing requires the oppression of others to exist. And he's realizing all of the things around it that make his life possible. Moses, a child of the oppressed, grows up to be the son of the oppressor until he realizes the gravity of his family's sins throughout history. And this is what causes him to act. When he really understands the severity of everything around him, he responds in the only way he knows how. He responds to conflict with violence. But in an attempt to stand up for the oppressed, he becomes the evil that he actually deplores. And then when, we, when he discovers that Pharaoh wants to pay evil for evil, he flees as one who's not on the top of society anymore. He's now at the bottom. Right? He flees now on the underside of the system that raised him. This is Moses' story. This is radically different than the Prince of Egypt telling, but this is Moses' story. As we've read it this morning, Moses' story is a story of awakening to the world around him. It's awakening to the privilege and prejudice the systemic evils that he was born into. It's a story of a soul that's being reordered. Moses' story is a story of breakthrough. It's a story that shows a soul can change. And Moses' otherhood and identity is about to be redeemed. Moses' pre-wilderness and then Moses' post-wilderness look like radically different people. His soul has changed, and it gives us hope we can change. And here is where Moses' story becomes a true story of hope. Moses flees to Midian, to the wilderness. He gets married. He starts working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. And as we saw before, Exodus, time jumps, right? Time warp. But in Acts, when it retells Moses' story, it says that Moses was a shepherd for 40 years. 40 years. He separated from the two worlds that raised him for 40 years. For a generation. For the amount of time it takes new life to overtake the old. And here we see that he's trying to reshape his own identity. In the wilderness, Moses has taken on a new identity as a foreign shepherd. He names his first son Gershom. For this exact reason, because he's a sojourner in a foreign land. He says this. He names his first son after his new identity. And then one day he encounters God in a burning bush. And in this encounter, God calls him to be a liberator, to bring justice to the oppressed, to return to what is both familiar and foreign. It's a call to press back into his otherhood, to leave his place of security, to secure the liberty for those who are less fortunate. After all of this, our passage starts with Moses protesting to God. 
But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord asks Moses, what is in your hand? And then we get three different signs. We see a staff that's turned into a snake. We have Moses and his hand. And then we have this uh, word about pulling water from the Nile and it turning into blood. Don't be fooled, friends. These are not three random acts that are chosen. Remember, according to the framework of our series, Spirit, Soul, Body, the soul is our mind, it's our will, it's our emotions, it's our imagination, our ingenuity. It's kind of the paradigm that frames our existence. With this in mind, when we pay attention, we see that every one of these acts challenge Moses' soul. They confront the lies of otherhood, insecurity, inadequacy that he can't shake. As one who's never felt at home with Egyptians or Hebrew people, we've seen that Moses has tried to reshape his soul as one who is a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses has spent a generation redefining what his life should look like, who he is. So professionally, Moses, he's a shepherd. When it comes to his personhood, he's untethered. He's not around anyone. He doesn't have responsibilities to anyone else other than his immediate family and Jethro. And then Moses' religious paradigm, it had no room for the Lord or Yahweh. And this is going to sound shocking to you. We imagine Moses, the day he's born, being in lockstep with God. Like, we imagine that. That they go hand in hand. But the text gives us no indication that this is true. I mean, think about this. He was nursed by his mother for 24 months. And once the time finished, he was given to Pharaoh's daughter. Next thing we know, he's grown up. Do you really think, while he is with Pharaoh's daughter, he's learning about Hebrew conceptions of God? Do you think he's learning that? Remember the culture and community that is surrounding him, what he's learning in this time, who God is to him as he's learning about divinity. Remember the culture and community that he is raised in. If we miss this, we miss the depth of soul transformation that happens to Moses when he encounters God. So incredibly, God begins to reverse the lies that Moses has believed about himself deep in his soul. Beginning with verse 2, when the Lord says to Moses, what is that in your hand? And this is the first act. Just as Pharaoh had commanded that every Hebrew boy be flung into the Nile, right? When Moses is filled with insecurity and doubt about his ability to relate to Hebrew people, to the Egyptians who he's betrayed, God tells him, fling your staff, cast your staff, the primary tool of his new identity as a shepherd. Like, throw that away. 
God is telling him, fling that to the ground. While he's tried to remake identity around his work and profession as a shepherd, and while he thinks that this is what keeps him from being able to be a liberating agent of God, God tells him, throw that to the ground. Because rather than being a deterrent, as a shepherd, Moses has been learning now for a generation, for 40 years, how to be a nurturer and a protector. He's had 40 years to reshape his mind, 40 years to deconstruct parts of his worldview that he used to hold with clenched fists, 40 years to rediscover and discover a new imagination. In this sign, Moses is told to shed the imagination that he can't make a difference because he spent 40 years in the wilderness taking care of sheep. Throw it to the ground, Moses. That is a lie from the deceiver. Grab that snake by the tail from the most vulnerable position and know that I am with you. Do not be afraid. You are destined for more. Do not doubt my faithfulness in your life, Moses. You think that your profession keeps you from being able to join in the work of God. It's actually exactly why I want you to lead. In this sign, God challenges lies that Moses has internalized deep in his soul around his ability to be used because of his work and his history. But next, in this second act, God is challenging the lie deep in Moses' soul that is that he thinks his personhood is too dirty to be used by God. He thinks that his otherhood, his inability to fit in the Egyptian world or the Hebrew world, makes him unfit for the work of liberation. God, no one is going to listen to me. How do I relate to these two worlds? But God is showing him that in this sign, God is not scared of his blemishes. God is not disgusted by what Moses has, whether he has clean hands or decaying hands. This is redemption. There is redemption in God, and there is invitation. Here God says, join me, Moses. People need chains to be loose. Folk are in need of liberation. It's that song we sang just seconds ago. Join me. You think your inability to fit in disqualifies you. But your personhood makes you perfect for this task. What you believe about your personhood deep in your soul cannot stop the infinitely creative God from working and calling you to participate in liberating the oppressed. And this is what this second sign is all about. God is affirming Moses' personhood even when Moses has tried to run from the different worlds of his past. God affirms him. And finally, in this third act, God confronts Moses' religious paradigm, and it's easy to miss this. But remember, Moses was born and raised in an environment where the Nile was the central source of flourishing and life in the region. 
The Nile specifically, the annual flood of the Nile, is what makes Egypt an agricultural powerhouse. It's what gives Egypt its power as a place in the region. The Nile. And so, it's not like, um, if you've seen The Mummy, right, we have Ra and the sun god, and we have one god for this one element. The Nile did not work that way. Instead, the Nile was the vehicle and the conduit of gods, all the gods, interacting with Egypt. And so multiple different gods interacted with the people through the channel of the Nile. It changes how we hear this last one, right? Because in Egyptian spirituality, there's no specific god attributed to the Nile. Instead, The Nile is something that multiple deities used to interact with people. And so when God tells Moses that he should draw water from this Nile, remember, remember his religious upbringing too, and then pour that on dry ground, which will turn to blood, this is absolutely loaded imagery. We could spend all day here, but God is speaking directly to the spiritual paradigm that Moses believes in his soul. Like he thinks and he has insecurities about going back because if he does, he's putting himself in line for divine retribution. When he returns to Egypt, God shows Moses that the Nile, the most central vehicle that the God used to interact with humans in Egypt, even that will not overtake him. This is utterly disorienting for Moses. It is really hard to have faith when you, and when what you've believed about spirituality no longer makes sense. It's really hard to have faith when the paradigms of spirituality that have been handed to us, that we've learned, the paradigms of spirituality that we've been taught, It's hard to have faith when those are proven false. And yet, even in his doubts, in his insecurities, God confronts the lie in Moses' soul that he has to have everything figured out. God confronts his thoughts of being unable to fit in different worlds around him. And God is helping to realign his soul in this moment to correct falsehoods in his mind, in his will, and in his emotions. God is showing and trying to show Moses that God is not put off by his profession, his personhood, the paradigms he may hold. God's not frustrated with his otherhood. He actually wants Moses to embrace it, to press into who he is. So where does this leave us this morning? We've covered a lot of content. How do we land this plane? Friends, we are really good at kicking ourselves when we're down. Sometimes, 
our sense of fitting, our sense of not fitting in causes us to try and remake ourselves, reshape ourselves. And in that process of remaking ourselves that we all do, hear the challenge that the Moses story leaves us with. Hear this challenge that this story gives us. When God calls you to whatever God calls, do any of Moses' protests match what you say to God? Around otherhood, profession, personhood, paradigm? If you can't, if, or if you think you can't be used by God, do you use any of these categories that Moses has used? Any of those reasons that Moses has used? Because if you think you can't serve God, God has a response for every protest. The Christian life is one where God is inviting us into care. The question is, for what and for whom is God calling you to this morning? Ponder this in your soul this week. God might just be issuing a new invitation to join in his work of redemption. Will you discern it? And will you respond to it? I've said it before. I don't think we can say it enough. As we are made able to respond to the grace of God in our life, as we are created to be response-able, we are also called then to be responsible for others and for creation. This is why salvation is a gift. Let us heed these words and discern God's will together. I'll call up the band. In a moment, we will celebrate the Lord's table. And at this table, we um, come to know and see and encounter the fullness of who God is. Hear this invitation as our servers come. Friends, this is the table, not of the righteous, but of the poor in spirit. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here in a long time or ever at all. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed in your trying. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And Christ invites everyone to know and be known here, to be fed here. Again, we've covered a lot of ground today. And there are probably different branches that connect and other branches that don't connect. But truly, ponder this in your soul this week. What is God reshaping 
when it comes to my soul and my identity? And will I respond to God just as God responded to the protests of Moses? God, be with us as we partake in your meal. We are grateful that you are here. As we partake, may we come to know you in both the bread, the juice, and also in the people that we are receiving from. You give freely. And we are grateful for the gift of this day and the gift of your church. Be near to us, we pray. In your name, amen. If you have children,